1: I want to welcome danielle spencer to the Phil of podcast danielle's the head coach at dartmouth played and coached at northwestern was an all-american won national championships has played on the us team and now is building the program as her first head coaching job at dartmouth danielle welcome to the show really happy to have you on
2: thank you so much very excited and honored to be included in this yeah. podcast because i'm already a fan of it myself so oh nice
1: well we I love talking lacrosse with you and I figure we might as well talk lacrosse and record it.
2: Yeah, sounds good.
0: The Philocrosphy podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. So, um, Daniel, give us a little bit.
1: I usually ask our um, our uh, guests uh, about their lacrosse journey. Um, and so just tell us a little bit about kind of where you came from and how you got into lacrosse and then, and then the Northwestern years and, and any and all mentors along the way that include, you know, assistant coaches that you coached with, you know, of course, Kelly and Scott and all that, but we'd love to hear about that stuff.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I'm from Rochester, New York, and, uh, I didn't know anything about lacrosse until I was in middle school. And apparently our varsity, um, girls lacrosse team at my high school, Brighton high school was very good, but I, you know, was in seventh grade. I had no idea. And the, um, Women's lacrosse coach at Brighton is a guy by the name of Richard Curtis, and he was my first coach and a big mentor of mine, but the, the, sto- the legend has it that uh, he was somehow substituting a middle school gym class, and he saw me in the gym class and decided that he wanted to recruit me to the girls' uh, varsity lacrosse team, and I, we were playing soccer or something else. I was a big soccer player back then, and I didn't even know anything, had never even heard of lacrosse. Um, So I gave it a shot. My first stick was, uh, we called it Big Red. It was a red stick. (laughs) And um, I was, you know, I was pretty brutal, but I was athletic. And so I would just, you know, uh, I I started out on defense and, you know, would face guard players and slowly but surely my stick skills got better. And I, you know, realized that I loved scoring goals and um, just kind of, you know, became became a a stronger player, you know, really once I was able to, to catch and throw, but he, it's funny, you know, having then down the road gone on to Northwestern, like Rich Curtis, who was my high school coach, him and Kelly are so different, but at, at, at face value, like Kelly is much more soft spoken and coach Curtis, he was a screamer on the sidelines, you know, everyone could hear him. And, but they both, you know, once you kind of, get beneath that exterior for him he just cared so much about his players and he is he's still at Brighton High School he's still doing an amazing job and I really um I got honored into the Rochester Hall of Fame Athletics Hall of Fame this fall and I made sure that he was there and I just spoke about him really because your first coach you never forget your first coach and um I, I just am so grateful that you know I could have played any sport but Like the journey that lacrosse has taken me on, I I would have never known, you know, in eighth grade that um, now I'd be coaching lacrosse and making my whole life, you know, is about the sport. So um, that's that's kind of the, the high school journey. And then what led me to Northwestern was kind of through Brighton High School, my best friend was Hillary Bowen, and she was the number one recruit in the country. She was a year older than me. And she was getting recruited by all of the top 10 programs in Northwestern at the time. This is before Northwestern won its first national championship. But Kelly was this new, young head coach on the scene. And if you kind of looked closely enough, you could see the trajectory of the program was getting better every year. And she was recruiting my – I was a, only a, a sophomore in high school at the time. And she was rec- started to recruit my best friend, Hillary. Um, who was older than me, and Hillary just, I remember her saying something about, you know, I I really, there's something about this Kelly, this coach, you know, I know, because she had, she could have gone to the number one school in the country, but she said, there's something about this Northwestern program that I I really feel like they're going somewhere, and then, so she kind of, you know, at the time, made this scandalous decision to uh, commit to Northwestern, who was like, ranked I think they finished that season ranked eighth in the country or something like that. And then lo and behold, the next year in 2005, her senior year in high school, my junior year in high school, Northwestern won its first national championship. And so by that point I was a good player myself. So Kelly just having, you know, started recruiting Hillary, then all she got to see me at the same time. And I was like, this is a win-win. My best friend is going to, the team that just won this national championship. And there's this young, awesome head coach. And I was like, how cool is this? I get to go play for this incredible program with my best friend in Chicago. So Northwestern lit, like, kind of fell into my lap because of my friendship with Hillary, who was such a highly recruited player. And then I was, you know, I was highly recruited, but I, I kind of had to grow into the player that I became, mm-hmm. you know, down the road. Um, like I really had to work, you know, I didn't see much playing time my, my freshman year at Northwestern and things like that. And I wasn't that, I wasn't a blue chip, you know, yeah. recruit. But that And I think Kelly was, Coach Curtis was the first person who introduced me to lacrosse, but then Kelly was really the first female lacrosse coach I'd ever had. And she really taught me, she kind of expanded my knowledge of the game in the sense of just she has such a creative mind and is so open to just pushing the envelope with the game. And she's so open to ideas that the kind of where I like the type of lacrosse that I was raised with was very, very traditional. And you just, you cradle here, you shoot like this, this is what you do. And Kelly kind of just expanded my whole world to like, well you can cradle it in all different areas and you can shoot it here and you can pass it this way. And like, that's, you know, and just, so she, she like made really kind of fueled my love for lacrosse in a different kind of way and then also just as a female athlete just the culture of the program that we had at northwestern really fueled me as like just becoming very confident as a female and a female athlete and just having an ex you know having an experience that really felt like like we were so proud of you know, our program, and we felt like just the the biggest badasses walking around campus, you know, and so I felt like that kind of shaped late, later on, once I started getting into coaching, that was kind of my reference point of that type of experience that I had as a player under Kelly was just I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I don't know how I'm gonna do this as a head coach, but I know that I want to make my players feel really confident and Um, I know that I want to continue to embrace that idea of creativity and open mind. And, you know, there's just, there's so many great ways to play the game. Um, And she kind of helped me see that as a player and then now as a coach.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. It's so much fun to be open and creative and to be able to allow your kids to your players to enjoy that. I think it's really special. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, and now there was a like, I mean, how many – first of all, how many championships did you win?
2: I won three as a player. Um, and how many as a coach? None so far.
1: None. Uh, we were you, at, at – I you staff,
2: we, we were at a couple final fours.
1: Yeah.
2: We were at a couple final – I mean, Northwestern's been in the NCAA tournament for, you know, however many years in a row now. But And then when I was on – the, the, I graduated in 2010 and then Northwestern won the championship in 11 and 12. And I, that was the year I came back on staff. And then we were at the final four again for a couple of years, but didn't, you know, seal the deal on those years, but it was obviously competitive enough for me to, you yeah. know, learn and grow to be able to feel like I could go and coach a championship team. Yeah. Um, but that's still, you know, I just, when I when the when the Dartmouth job opened up, I was really torn because I was like, Man, I, I you know, Northwest if I leave for Dartmouth, Northwestern wins a championship, I'm gonna be pissed. You know. <laughs> so um, I'm always rooting for the cats
1: still. Yeah. yeah. There's so the, the coaching tree, Kelly's coaching tree is pretty amazing and you're a part of it. Um, but yeah. talk a little bit about some of the relationships with the other Wildcat players that are um, out there coaching and, and that were teammates or maybe the assistant coaches when you were a player or what, but I know there's a ton of them.
2: Yeah. So when I was a player, we had, for four years, I had Lindsay Monday as one of my assistant coaches. And so she was also, she is a friend of mine and a big mentor of mine. And she similarly kind of had that. She worked with like under Kelly for our offense and she just, I mean, my stick skills still, still to this day, I'm not what you would describe as a tricky player. You know, my, but my, my stick skills developed so much at Northwestern under Kelly. And then under Lindsay Monday, her working with me, with just me becoming a better attacker. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, Annie Elliott for two years, who's now at Colorado and Lindsay's at USC. And then Acacia Walker was also my assistant coach there for two years. Um, who's obviously now at Boston College so I just was being coached by these incredible uh, players and coaches and now they're all running their own amazing programs I mean USC Colorado Boston College those are three powerhouses right now so I feel very and they're all different personalities Lindsay Acacia Annie um, and all kind of Lindsay and Annie obviously played at Northwestern but Acacia was very much a part of the Northwestern culture while she was there even though she played at uh, Maryland mm-hmm. um, so that was cool for me too, and I think that when I was graduating, I didn't even know that I wanted to become a coach yet, but now, looking back, it makes sense that, if, that I would love coaching because I just had all these amazing role models right. who were you know just these who could show me like, you know this isn't just a sport, but you can actually make a career out of this, you know, and yeah. you could live a great life and and get to coach young women. And so looking back, I didn't, you know, at the time I was just kind of living each day, but now I realize how many people I had like shape.
1: Amazing. And then yeah. your teammates too, you have, a, you, I'm sure you had a bunch of teammates that are out division one coaching. Oh
2: man. Yeah. I mean, Sarah Albrecht at, at UNH and Angela McMahon at UMass. She was not, we were not team, teammates together. We just missed each other by a couple of years at Northwestern, but Uh, she's an alum and our because the program only started in 2001 yeah we're all we were and we still are but at my generation we were very close with the alumni because it was still such a new program and so like there were alumni that I forget sometimes that I didn't even play with them because I know them so well it feels kind of like I played with them um and uh, there were a lot that were coaching for a while. Hillary Bowen and uh, Alyssa Leonard were coaching for a while. Kara Mufo is at Stanford now. And uh, Brooke Matthews was coaching for a while. Shannon Smith at Hofstra. And um, Katrina Dowd at North Carolina. She, we were classmates.
1: Oh, wow. Um,
2: yeah, me and Katrina were we, – we had the dorms. Our dorms were next to each other. And then we were, so we were literally on the, she was 308 and I was 309 for our freshman year. And we had a small class too. There were six of us. So me and Tricks, you know, we've been many, buddies since then too. How many too. is
1: this, she get to you? I bet a lot. Oh, huh?
2: a lot. Yeah, a lot.
1: Yeah. She's a good feeder you're a big target, you know, like. Yeah.
2: That. She was able to draw a ton of attention around the crease, you know, and then she could bump it up to me up top or alternatively I could draw attention and hit her down low, but she was and she also was the type of player that really just you know kind of opened my eyes to different ways to play the game you know yeah um she just played, the way that she the was way I
1: like to, the way i like to coach i like watching her because she's got the sort of canadian uh yeah. box uh field hybrid model of playing and i i love the way she plays i love you know that's what that's what i try to teach players to play like you know that all yeah. craftiness and you know, not being afraid to use your behind the back as a fundamental as opposed to something that kind of can be regarded as, you know, more like showboating as opposed to it's a really deceptive past that's impossible to guard or they're guarding the wrong yeah. side of you.
2: <laughs> For me, it was like, I, what, like our Brighton high school team, we were very traditional in the way that we played. But we did, you know, we had, our systems were very strong and we had great players. So we won a lot of games and that was what I knew. And then once I got to Northwestern, I real realized that, you know, like with the, with kind of Kelly's philosophy and then players like Katrina around me that just were, they were just goofing off doing stick tricks, you know, before and after practice. And I had never been exposed to that type of culture where like, you might just practice making a certain pass that maybe you're not ready to make that in a game, but you're going to do it in practice. Cause just cause it's fun, you know, and because it makes you better. And that was kind of, um, that was, and now I embrace that same culture with our program at Dartmouth is just like, 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 you, you know, sometimes you got to get down to the X's and O's, but sometimes you can just make lacrosse really fun and stick work and stick tricks and shooting. And like, that was, that was a big part of my Northwestern experience. Like we had that type of culture where you wanted to go to practice every day because you were, you were going to learn something cool that day, you know, and it was going to, it was really going to challenge your stick work. And, but it was going to be really fun, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, this is a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about next was, you know, you're a head coach now, you've got all these experiences and you're applying them and you're in this mode probably of what just, learning so much it's so hard to prepare to be a head coach so first of all just talk a little bit about what it was like to go from an assistant to being a head coach and you know you can prepare all you want but there's nothing like it until you do it
2: yeah I it was it's been one of the scariest and most rewarding things I'm, I'm so proud and I I absolutely love being a head coach to feel that type of Pride for your program and just the way that you can build relationships with your players as a head coach. Um, But I I just remember you know my first couple months there like, just you go from having a kind of a role as an assistant coach and maybe working with a smaller group of players or working with players individually and then as a head coach, everyone's looking at you you know and in the huddle they're all eyes are on you you know and so it really took me a while to. And I'm a I'm a very confident person, but it really took me a while to kind of get my voice and get my confidence and just that feeling of like, of like commanding a huddle and looking, all, looking at all of my players in the eyes. Like it sounds kind of silly, but that took me some time to kind of build that type of trust in myself and trust in my own, you know, voice. Um, so I think that's been a big growth area for me is just like really being able to really like command the leadership of the team. Um, And then also the other thing that I would say from an assistant coaching perspective is you are only really responsible for yourself. And then you just, you know, you do whatever your boss needs you to do. And then you just, you handle your own roles and you do them to the best of your ability. But I had never, um, I had never had to manage anyone else. And then, so then as a head coach, you have assistant coaches and, That was a big growth area for me, too, because I was just I'm the type of person like I've got a strong work ethic and I just would do it all myself, you know, if I could. And so being able to delegate and work with our staff and be able to make my assistant coaches feel like they have ownership and make them feel really confident in their role. um, So that was just a lot for me, like, yeah you know, practice every day, your players are looking at you in the office every day, your assistants are looking at you. And so, um, I love it, you know, but it definitely, there were, there are things that I didn't realize that I was learning under Kelly, that now that I'm a head coach, I'm, I look back, there's so many times where I'm like, oh yeah, okay. You know, this is what I was oblivious to, you know, as an assistant. And now I understand, um,
1: Honestly, people don't realize this, but to be a division one head coach is it's such a complex job. There's literally so many things to it. Because you've got the part you were all just talking about, which is, you know, on the field, which you have to like, you know, command and get everybody organized. But that's like ten percent of it, you know. I mean yeah, you've got all the recruiting. Which is a massive job. You've got compliance. you've got you know your kids off the field, you, you know, the mentorship, the drama, the kids were through some tough times. Yeah. Um, you know, the fundraising, um, I mean, literally there's so many elements to it. it's amazing.
2: Yeah, it is. It just my my i've I've gotten much better now in my in the middle of my third year, but for that first year, I mean, my head was just spinning constantly. Yeah you know and you just have to learn to just trust you know you just trust yourself trust your players trust your assistants because i think i if you try to be perfect you're just gonna your head's going to spit off you know so i've been more okay with just making mistakes more okay with thinking something's going to go a certain way and then it doesn't go a certain way and like you know i would i used to get totally bent out of shape from situations like that and now i've gotten much better at kind of just going with the flow controlling what i can control but there's plenty yes. that i can't Totally. Um, and that's not my nature, you know. It's hard. So that's it's hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, really. But I, I but
2: I love it, you know. And the, and I think the biggest thing is just the feel, like being able to shape a culture. Yeah. It's so cool, you know. And it, there's there's those moments when one of your players says something to a teammate that I know came out of my mouth, you know, a month earlier. And just being able to being able to have them start to have a certain language, you know, for for our team and a certain type of like culture and identity for the program. Now that that's finally starting to like seep in, that's probably some of the the cooler experiences for me. Just when I hear my players say something at practice, and it's like, yeah, I I coached them on that, you know, I taught them that, or they do something in a in a game or they do something at practice that, you know, we taught them. Or they have an experience you know, in their life outside of lacrosse, and I know I helped mentor them for that. you know those those are kind of the where you feel really proud of like, okay, yeah, I am having an impact in in her life.
1: Very cool. So. How would you describe your program if you were to try to describe like you know what what you kind of want to be known for, both the way you play in your culture? sort of in one area. yeah
2: we talk about our identity a lot we talk about being the women of the woods up at Dartmouth you know we're in the woods uh, we're right on the Appalachian Trail uh on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont and so we talk about embodying that with that you know when no matter win or lose when a team plays us they know that they know that we are tough we're confident we're gritty, so, you know, it's important for us, the, the hostile statistics of draw controls and ground balls, um, and we just talk about wherever we go, we, we bring the woods with us, you know, because we train every day, and, you know, uh, cold temperatures, and just this kind of very, Dartmouth is a very outdoorsy, gritty type of atmosphere, and so we feel like that shapes, um, you know, the the identity of the team, and we take a lot of pride in in that, in, in our work ethic. Um, but also I think part of what I've carried with, and that's a big part of like what Dartmouth already has. We just have this landscape that lends to feeling like just there's a very outdoorsy spirit um, where we, we feel proud of like training in the elements. But then also we talk a lot about confidence and we talk about being a badass, you know, like that was something I think I learned from Northwestern and learned from Kelly is just as a female athlete to go and like, just be confident and do what you do and, and be proud of who you are and be proud of the way that you play. And, um, and that takes shape in like having confidence as a team, but then like individually that there's not one, one size fits all for each player. And that like trying to make my, you know, help my players understand what they do really well and then letting them own that, you know, for the, for their own personal style of play. So I would say those, like, if it, I would hope that if someone were to, you know, pinpoint our identity of like all oh, Dartmouth women's lacrosse, I would think that they would say that they're tough and they're confident. Um, Love that. You know, we're not afraid to shoot. We dodge hard. Um, we're, we're, we, we talk about being brave, you know, that, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't play it safe. You know, we play, we play very bravely. We're, we've kind of taken the word like fearless out of our vocabulary because I think that it's okay to have fear, but we talk about being brave, you know, Love in the face of fear. Love that. Um, yeah.
1: That's very cool. I mean, uh, yeah. it's, um, you know, tough, confident, gritty, brave, being a badass, you know, um, it, it, it is really cool. And with the, with the jump that these recruits come in from high school to college or from youth to high school to college where they're constantly actually being told to, like, take it easy and don't yeah. <laughs> And all of a sudden you get to Division One women's lacrosse, which is a really physical game, which you were yeah. describing yesterday to me in a call where you were like, yeah, you got to get used to shooting when people are cross-checking you in the ribs. And, um, you know, and you need to be tough and confident, and gritty and brave, and it's liberating to be a badass.
2: Just, we talk about, we talk about like, you know, you play lacrosse for four years, hopefully longer, but then you graduate and with a Dartmouth degree, you're going to be doing something pretty cool, you know, and, um, like. Our, our young women, they're graduating with big time jobs and they're pretty, before they know it, a couple years in, they're, they're managing people and they're leading people. So we try to create a culture of like empowering them with a ton of confidence and leadership skills where as, you know, as a young woman, they can go and enter the workplace and they're not going to be a wallflower, you know? And so we like, we try to use lacrosse as a vehicle to make them feel like they have you know ownership of their life. You know, and um, that they can go and pursue whatever they want to do it, and they can do it passionately, passionately, and and be really, be really proud of pursuing something passionately, and be, you know, be be comfortable, you know, speaking their mind and owning their voice, and um, so we feel like we're like our athletic director at Dartmouth. One of the things I really liked about him when I interviewed with him is and he talks about it all the time. He says that sports, it's, it's, a uh, um, he's it's, it's they're learning laboratories, you know? And so that you just, you know, it's, you want to win games, but you're using sport as a vehicle to teach life skills to young people. And that's something that you understand as an assistant coach, but you don't, like, I really started to understand it when I became a head coach, like, yeah, I want to win games. Obviously I'm really competitive, but well, you know, I. what's more important is that the type of players that are graduating from our program that they have, you know, they're ready to, they're very excited and empowered and proud to go lead awesome lives um, yeah. and make an impact, you know? So we feel like we can use lacrosse and every day at practice, we can do certain things that challenge them to, have leadership skills and have a voice and have competence, and be brave.
0: So
1: very cool. Oh.
0: The Phil V podcast is brought to you in part by the JM three coaches training program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information.
1: Um, in the practical sense, how do you do this? I mean, there's so many times where the directive comes from the coach as to what we're going to work on today and what drills we're going to run or what we're going to run on offense or defense. But in the end, it, it really matters what the players understand more so than what the coach, you know, what the coach knows is one thing, but what the players know is what's really important. How do you foster this element of leadership and um, – and, Taking your messages and actually applying them in real time, because it seems like that's that's the the whole key both to the long term being able to do this in business but also the short term being able to have a successful team that communicates and self corrects and stuff like that
2: yeah, so that's been one of the biggest uh growth areas for me is that you know my first year I would say at dartmouth, I was really like i i, I you know. I have, um, I'm an emotional person and any type of criticism to me as a coach, you know, I took that so hard, whatever it was, you know, just, I've never been, I've never done great at feedback, you know, and, and criticism. And so that was really holding me back as a coach was not being able to like have those conversations with my players where that, you know. I I see what I see from my coaching lens, but they also have a lens as a player, you know, in the locker room, on the field, in the games. And if I'm not going to be open to hear any of that, then how am I giving them any type of power for their own, you know, like when, when the game starts as a coach, you, you don't play, you know? So like, they're the ones that are out there. And so that I really just started to become way more open to feedback, Um, And we do it in all different types of ways. Like after games, I have my players write down their thoughts about the game individually, you know, in terms of their strengths and weaknesses. And then also program, like what what did we do well? What do we, you know, think about it in the practice setting. What, What drills do we need to continue to do that you think are having a strong impact for us? And, or what are we missing right now? You know, what do you think that we need to, and like, that was, that's tough as a coach early on. You hear your players say something that you either, you're like, oh, man, that player is really right. How, can, how have I been overlooking that? Or it's just something that just it stings a little bit, you know, but kind of like trusting my players that they respect me, they have the program's best interests at heart, and being able to just really listen to them and, like, be open to their ideas. And so that's one way. And then we also have little leadership groups within the team. We call them squads. And each squad has a squad leader. There's six of them, um, and we've got 36 players on our team. So there's six squad leaders of six players within each. And we do a lot of team discussions where they'll talk. For, uh, I'll pose a question, you know. So like we talked about our um, how how winning is very much an an outcome based goal, and like we want to win Ivy Championships. It, but that's that's a big outcome at the end of the season and so how can we measure ourselves along the way so I challenged them as squads to I said what what do we want to have as smaller process goals from game to game where regardless of the win or the loss you know we can hold ourselves accountable if we're pr- improving um so like st- like statistically you know ground balls and shooting percentage and save percentage and fouls and um c- turnovers cause turnovers but I let them discuss that as a team. And so then what happens is that was a big, we worked on that for a couple of days where they would discuss it as a squad. And then they presented their, I had them present. They do a lot of like public speaking with our program. They'll present their ideas to their teammates. Um, and so we kind of collectively as a group decided on what our goals are for the 2019 season. And, but it wasn't coached down. It was player driven. And so now, you know, it sounds corny, but it's true now, like they set their own goals. Yeah. And so all that we have to do as a coach is we have to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable. If these are the goals that we've set, then what are the things that we're doing in practice to, you know, improve those goals. And, but then our players feel like a sense of accountability because if they said that, you know, we're going to win more draws and more ground balls than our opponents, and we're not, you know, but we're doing those drills in practice, then it's like they can kind of, that's where the leadership comes in. Because then it's like, well, you know, are we working hard enough or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, that's how we build leadership is that as coaches, we let our players communicate their opinions and we, we listen to their feedback and just kind of, and, and then we encourage them to have a, with there's a lot of discussion you know team discussions and then like presentations of teammates to to their coaching staff and teammates to their peers where we kind of challenge them to like take some ownership in the process
1: yeah really cool yeah what what's your um what's your philosophy on player development
2: philosophy on player development would be my i would say my philosophy is that in as opposed to reps i think about the biggest challenge so like our the way that we try to develop our players at a faster rate is that we try to put them in situations that are more challenging in terms of drills so we're always thinking about how can we make this drill a little bit harder you know for um whether it's making the space smaller or you know putting an extra defender in the drill, or just putting kind of certain parameters that make it tougher. And so that we try to create a practice environment that feels tougher than how the game is gonna feel. And so in terms of player development, we kind of, I kind of live by the philosophy of like letting the the game, letting the mistakes that you make in a tough drill teach you about, you know, what like how to how to handle your stick in a certain way or so like as a so as opposed to doing you know partner passing I would rather like that they might my players might get a ton of reps where they're just pack passing back and forth they might get a ton of passing reps but I would rather put them in a drill that's like a possession box because then within that there's a higher level of challenge it might not be the same number of reps but there's a way higher level of challenge that's going to force you out of your comfort zone. And so the, I would say that is our philosophy of player development is that we try to make it very uncomfortable. And so then over time you build comfort within the drill. Um, but early on, it's not pretty, you know, there's going to be a ton of turnovers and it's going to be a mess, but then you start to build comfort within your stick skills within the drill you know same thing with shooting you know not just shooting on a cage without a goalie you know but making sure there's a goalie in the cage and it's not 100 sometimes you do need to teach something new and there's something to be said for just you know not having any type of challenge so that they can really learn the skill but once we get the sense that they understand the skill then we throw them into the fire right away and kind of like try to take a step back as coaches and we really try not to overcoach. We just let the drill play out and let them make mistakes.
1: I so is is um is part of what you're thinking is you want your players to be constantly in having to make decisions. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. with a defender there, you know, in a in a possession drill meeting like a keep away type of drill, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas partner passing, you can rep out a million passes, but there's nobody on you. There's no decision. There's no read, you know, when all of a sudden you make it a two on one keep away drill or a three on two or whatever you want. Now, all of a sudden there's defenders defending you. There's people in your way. Um, exactly. there's reads to make, there's people to fake. Um, and I agree with that so much. And we've talked about this a little bit before. I think it's really, I think it's really cool. What's your take on though, Uh, partner passing on the run at speed I mean because a lot of I'm I'm such a believer in what you're talking about but I feel like being able to just hammer out full speed reps of throwing the ball 10 or 15 yards maybe even 20 yards on the run I feel like even though there's not a lot of decisions there I feel like it is challenging enough and it does crank out your reps of handling on the run at speed what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. So we do that too. We call it, you know, we'll say balls from the 50 and our players know what that means. But like the way that we add a little bit of challenge to that is we'll put a goalie in the cage at the other end. So that instead of just running and passing to, you know, to to no man's land, there's a destination and you have to get down to the other end. And then one of you, you or your teammate has to take a shot on a goalie. Yep. So it, it, and somehow they're always going faster when there's a destination at the other end. You right. know? So I found that like, if we just do partner passing and you're running upfield, it, it suddenly everyone's going faster and more intense when there's a goalie that they're about to take a shot on. And then we do, don't do that for very long. And then we'll add a defender in and almost make it a 2v1. we we'll say ball's from the 50, but it's a 2v1. So the person in the middle is looking to knock down that pass. And they, you know, it just, the whole drill becomes faster at speed. Um, so, like, we, I, we would do partner passing, but not that long. I would rather do it like a 2v1 ground ball or a 2v2 ground ball from the 50 or the far restraining line, and then they're still going to have to pass on the run as they're building into, you know, that offensive zone.
1: So you turn your 2v0 – into uh, a 2v1 where you just all come in from the midline and basically yep. just pull on sprint And, hey, you may pass it once. You may pass it twice. You may not even pass it, actually, if they don't even guard you, right? But it's a read right. all the way down. Um, right. And it truly is full speed when there's a defender there. Yeah, that's exactly. a great that's a great call. And that's a yeah. perfect example right there of you're not going to get as many reps of passing and catching in that 2 on one from the midline. Because right. you might only pass it once or twice, whereas you might get five or six, you know, if you were just running. So, yeah, that's really cool. And the whole – I mean, I've heard it said that, you know, why would you practice anything other than decisions? Right. I mean, in some ways, because the whole game is your decisions.
2: Yeah.
1: How would you say, um, you know, the players, you know, that you're, that you're recruiting and getting um, – how would you say – if you were to give advice to high school coaches that might be listening to this, how would you like to see them prepared? I guess the answer might be you just gave the answer. But how? what are the kinds of things that you'd like to see out of, you know, player development from high school programs if you were to give some advice to people?
2: One of the things that I notice as the biggest difference for us is we feel like we have to spend a lot more time um, teaching how to be a great defender. Like if you just – some of these defenses in college, I don't see high school defenses like that. I see a lot of high school players that they've got incredible stick skills. They can shoot. Like, I see better it's, – it's been much easier for me lately to identify great high school attackers, you know, um, or just middies, you know, that just the thoroughbreds they can run. But finding great defenders, I would say, like, that – when you see a high school team or a club team have a great team defense, like that sticks out on a whole field where, you know, you, you all, any field you're going to have a couple players that have just incredible, sh- you know, shots and stick work. But I would say like, that's one of the areas where we will have players at camp and they can do a million things with their stick, but then they, you throw them into a one V one and they just get smoked, you know, where, so like that's, and it's not fun. Like t- plant, Well, for a lot of people, that's not as fun, you know, teaching defense at your camp, you know, versus teaching a certain stick skills. Um, But we have tried to make an effort to like, even at our camps where we're trying to recruit kids and make it a really fun experience, we're still always having a couple tough, you know, defensive drills in there where we're teaching defensive fundamentals, because that's a big part of our program. And, but also just because I feel like that's kind of an under... I just get – it seems to me to be a little bit undercoached right now. Um, and just when you – that like, that's – when I – when our freshman players come in, that's probably the biggest area where I see them struggle is, like, they go up against a college defender and, like, they just, you know, they can't get by that player. Alternatively, like, they can't defend, you know. Um, they're just they're, – they're not as they're, – they're more buoys. You know, they're not getting low to the ground. They're not getting their hands out. Like, um, so we, we, we feel like we spend a lot of time in the fall because of our freshmen coming in. We spend a lot of time working on our defensive fundamentals.
1: I see a lot, you know, on the, um, on the flip side, you know, a, an attacker has a hard time going against a Division One defender when they get to college because they're not used to being cross-checked that much. And, exactly. and everybody, yeah. everybody is really fast in division one, you know, um, and whereas in high school, you know, you might be faster than your opponent most of the time. And but to me, this is something that I, the, the late great Dave Huntley. OK, I don't know if you know Dave Huntley, but an incredible person, great friend of mine, was a mentor of mine. Um, he always used to say, listen, anything that happens outside of what we'll call the eight and women's lacrosse is all noise. Meaning you can do whatever you want out there, but what happens in the eight is pretty much like can you can you score a goal by getting your hands free and shoot the ball? How many yep. times do you see someone who's so fast but they can't actually get a shot off? They can't awesome. actually. And I think part of that is just that it comes from that one concept, which is that if you work on everything outside there, you know, I want the you know all your speed the, the defense can close that down. They can slide. I mean, it's, you know, the question is, can you handle the ball in tight? Can yeah. you get your hands free in tight? Because how many times do you see a, a girl in shooting range in, in, in high school where they didn't shoot and they just ran it out? Mm-hmm. And all they had to do was get their shot off. They were like literally like four yards from the crease and, and, and good angle. Um, what, what's your take on that concept of everything outside of the eight is kind of just noise, or do you not subscribe to
2: um I definitely don't not subscribe to that I mean I agree like there's you you I mean that's something that I've am thinking about right now about our team is it's like you know that's great if we can ride and clear and win draws but like you got to put the ball in the back of the net you know and that comes down and like that happens in the eight for women's lacrosse and so it just I've kind of realized more just the, it's, it sounds obvious, but the importance of being a good shooter is like, that is the essential. You can be a great player, but if you can't score, then how are you really a great player? You know, as a, as a midfielder or an attacker, obviously. Um, So that's kind of been what I've been thinking about a lot because I, you know, I watch film of our team and we're doing this so well, we're doing this so well, we're doing this so well. And then, Oh, the ball's going down the other end. Because that final piece, that final piece of execution is the shot. And so we've got one more game on Wednesday, but then I've been brewing a lot lately. And I was telling you about this yesterday that I feel like for our team right now, that has to be one of our biggest focuses, is just that execution inside the eight meter when you've got a goalie, you know, in the cage and you've got a defender cross-checking you in your hands. Can you put that ball in the back of the net? And I feel like that's going to be the difference for us in the big game of the win and the win or the loss. Um, and it sounds obvious, but I, I do think that, and, and it's hard because we, we do a lot of numbers drills because yep. they're fun. You know, we do a lot of uneven 4v3, 5v4 stuff, but there's something to be said for drills where no matter what, you are always going to have someone on your hands, you know? So we're, we're as a coaching staff, thinking a lot about, you know, let, we can't just do numbers drills where you're going to get a shot, you know, where you don't have a defender on you. We also have to find some ways where it's physical. Um, we're thinking about, like, football pads, getting those out, getting, you know, kind of onto our players' hands. But um, I, think, I think his point is great. Like, that's how you – that's the final piece of it lacrosse. Is, yeah. The ball has to go in the net. If you can't do that, then everything else is kind of irrelevant.
1: I know. And it's, it doesn't mean there aren't other important things, but I think that that is something that I, I do think it's really interesting. And I yeah. don't think that in general women's lacrosse, you think of dodges that are happening. You know, when you think of a Dodger, you think of the great thoroughbred that you referred to, but, but yeah. actually some of the best Dodgers are just the ones that are, you know, that are, that can post you up. They can see a double coming. They can give you a yeah. little rocker and get a screenshot off and there's nothing you can do about it because they're looking right at you.
2: Yeah. Or I just think about certain. I, there's, you know, a player on my team that I'm thinking about right now, and it's just like, I, it's just there's just something to be said for being a great shooter. Like it just makes you. You don't have to be the best player. You don't have to be the most athletic. You don't have to be the best dodger. But if you can have the higher shooting percentage, you know, like it's just, it's like man, I, I always want her on the field, you know, because there's just that level of like and, and you see that with, with great players, it's the, the, the great attackers, it's, it's the shooting, you know, like, it's not about being, yeah, the fastest or the best runner, it's, you know, the, the, the shooting percentage, and I think about that with our team a lot, like, as I look, I'm like, all right, we're doing this pretty well, but I look at our shooting percentages across the board, I'm like, how much better could we be if I could just improve everyone's, you know, efficiency a little bit more?
1: Right. Speaking of Dave Huntley and shooting efficiency, he was really big into an- analytics, and he coached in the MLL for a lot of years, um, and he had five years of N- MLL Major League Lacrosse stats, and it is amazing how much this stat stands out to me. Every single they they divide up you know maybe thirty different areas in, uh, around the uh, inside the two point arc in, in, in MLL lacrosse, and in every single little quadrant. If your stick was to the middle, you, you, you shot with a higher percentage. In some, some cases, really significant. Some cases, maybe not as much, depending on how close they were to the middle. Um, but how much do you think about trying to get your stick to the middle with your shots? Um, basically, the alley dodge being the lowest percentage sh- shooting uh, play uh, that there is.
2: We talk about that a lot, and we talk about it kind of with that. We just say, instead of taking that shot, why don't you just make one more pass across the crease? Yeah, you know, so kind of the same idea, like, why don't you just pass it to a teammate when when her stick is in the middle, instead of taking that low angle alley shot, you know, that's almost that almost becomes selfish, like, you know, if you're not ready to score that, why don't you just, you know, if you're drawing some attention, like, why don't you see if you got a teammate across the crease. Um, and you see that more when you watch like box across, that's, that's how you have to score, you know, oh, yeah. you have to make you have to pass, move the goalie like that. So we've been talking about that a lot, that idea of that one more pass um, with our team um, and just getting them to understand, like, it's not about whether or not you, you could take a shot because I think we, I, I've been talking with my players, like, it's not about just pr- taking the first shot that you're able to produce, you know, it's about, like, working for the shot that's going to be the, sh- the shot that scores the goal you know and so maybe it's not you maybe it's you drawing the attention and obviously we want everyone to improve their shooting but it's it's not just about shooting it's about scoring the goal and so what's gonna what's gonna do that and it it is it's getting the ball to a stick that's in the middle um so and we just we've like moved a little bit away from just dodges down the alley because of that too like Unless or or the expectation is that we're going to draw a slide that's going to you know move the ball, you know, somewhere else. But it's not about necessarily dodging down the alley to create a shot. It's just dodging down the alley to drop you know generate the slide.
1: Right. Um Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not to say you can never shoot an alley shot because if you're well inside the hashes, and, totally. You know, it's it, you're, you're going to stick that shot. But um, but I think that uh, you know, it's getting the getting those angles and really as a coach. Uh, making sure it's clear to your team what your expectations are of a good shot. I think that is so huge because if your players understand that, then you know, then, then they're not going to take terrible shots. Yeah. <laughs> um, terrible shots are turnovers. You know, they 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 just end up being they they end up being rough. Um, what would you say is what? What's your take on um, on two man game? Do you guys run much two man game at uh, at Dartmouth, and how much are you seeing that?
2: I'm seeing it a lot. I love it. We're not doing too much of it yet um, just because I've got a group of players who we started kind of a, um, we started a different style of play a year ago and those players haven't graduated yet and we've we've developed a little bit of an offensive identity and there's not a lot of two-man game in it right now and I'm reluctant to change something that I think is going pretty well for us um but you're seeing it more and more and then just I see it more and more and then I turn on the tv and I see it in, in basketball and all these other sports and it just shows that like if women's lacrosse is growing the way that we know it is then that's just gonna be become a bigger part of the game you see it in box you see it in the men's game and our sport is growing so much that it's like I just think that now now that we're now there's just more exposure. And so there's it, it, you, like for me as a coach, um, I'm seeing the value in it. Um, I just, I think from the, what's held me back is feeling like if I'm going to do it, I want to be able to do it well. And I want to make that a big part of our offensive identity. I don't want to just, you know, teach two man game one day at practice and then yeah. never go back to it. I want it to be part of like our culture you know? Um, so I think that for me, that's going to be, take a little bit more of like, you know, if I decide to do it, then I want to spend, you know, a couple of weeks preparing for, you know, yeah. our kind of developmental philosophy and then, and then do it. Um, Cause that's what I've learned. I've moved away from just like, you know, doing like, just trying to, we try to keep things challenging but relatively simple in the practice setting and there's development over time and I feel like to become great at the two-man game it's something that you have to constantly rep every day yep. and then it you're then it over time it becomes great right um and so I feel like that's probably it, very much in our future at Dartmouth we're not there yet but I'm the more and more I see pro I mean I watch Northwestern now and it's like Even they've, they've kind of been doing that for two years now, but already year two, the way that they're too like it's, it's, it becomes unstoppable. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing the value in it and I'm just my, the wheels are churning in the back of my brain to be able to like this summer, you know, perhaps, or when I can have a down period, really be ready to like go all into it.
1: Yeah, and study up. Well, you're going to see it, so you might as well prepare for it anyway. you got to prepare for it, right? Yeah. Might as well know how to do it. But also, I mean, the analytics, I mean, back to Hunt's, you know, he did it, he was into analytics, and he did studies on two-man games, shooting percentages, and MLL lacrosse, and they were higher than in every category of out top, wings, and behind. The shooting percentages were higher coming out of two-man games, than they were out of isolations. And it's because two reasons. One, because it puts two players in a position where they have to communicate one screws it up, it's a goal. And yeah. the other thing is, is that now that there are fewer defenders that can cover up if they have to slide. And yes. those two scenarios, uh, are, you know, are, are, are really interesting. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's fun to see. You see it, like you said, you see it in basketball. You see it in box lacrosse. It's become a huge part of men's lacrosse. And you are seeing it. I mean, uh, you know, I watched uh, women's lacrosse this weekend, and I saw actually uh, plenty of it, you know. So it's really cool. Um, Danielle, last question for you. Um, Let's just talk a little bit about recruiting and sort of what you're looking for um, in the various positions that you recruit.
2: Yeah, I would say just that statement in general has been a growth area for me. I think I used to just think about recruiting just just the best athletes, you know, and that's obviously you don't not want to do that. That's kind of a given, but I've been way more more thoughtful now about being a little bit position specific you know what and just trying to put a lot more thought into like what are we who are we graduating and what do we need as opposed to just think you especially with this whole recruiting circuit you just you see so many games and so many players that sometimes you forget about your own program and like you're just seeing players that you that you like because they're good players but i've tried to be a little bit more thoughtful about like what, you know, if I'm recruiting this class of juniors in high school, who will be on my team? What are the players that I have right now on my team? So what are the positions that we're going to need, you know, to, to replace whether it's attackers or defenders, midfielders, goalies, or even more specific, like, do, do we need more feeding? Do we need more, you know, um, people that can really catch anything off ball? Do we need more lefties? Do we need, what do we need? Um, so that to me is – be, we've become much more position-specific yeah. in our recruiting. And I really try to communicate that, like, all right, we're looking for two defenders. We're looking for these two attackers. I want I want a lefty. I want a righty feeder. I want this. And then that helps my assistants, too. Like, we can kind of – when we have our recruiting conversation, it's like, okay, let's talk, about, let's talk about our favorite feeders. You know, like, let's talk about our favorite crease attackers in this class and then we can get a little bit more specific in our discussions and then it's like okay let's talk about our favorite defenders you know what what are the strengths and weaknesses of this defender and um thinking about like when this player graduates on our team we can see this player you know replacing her um
1: but so that's um that's like uh, you're thinking about positions within positions yeah right and um and trying to you know because you don't you don't want seven of the same players because you know well
2: and then it's not good for them because then they're just gonna be miserable yeah you know if you got recruited and you're a great player but you can't play at like you could play at another school but you can't play at your school because there's someone else who's better than you in your position like not that that's not gonna happen but I think that there's a little bit of responsibility on coaches too with that you know
1: yeah. Well, you don't need that. Right. You need, you need somebody, you know, you don't want seven girls, uh, seven, seven players that all need to have the ball on their stick the whole time to be good. You know, you right. need to have a few that, you know, are going to be able to be their, your pick centers and your cutters and your feeders and your lefties and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, really interesting. And, um, what about, um, how do you look at them, ver- you know, from, uh, emerging areas versus traditional, I think I heard you say one time you really do look at, um, you know what kind of coaching they're getting along the way, because probably because of the IQ piece that is so important to being able to win. You have to be able to play as a team.
2: Yeah, I think I I'm always torn with this concept because I I personally the the type of team that I was on as a player at Northwestern we had a group of girls from all over the world, you know. Yeah and all over the country and it was so fun like it just makes the locker room experience so cool to have girls from all different states international players and you just you it forces everyone to create a home away from home like we didn't have anyone who's going home on the weekend you know because everyone was a flight away from their family and that was very very cool like culturally for our team yes but there's also just the fact of the matter of like a player from an emerging area there's a lot more lacks iq in development to be done once they get to college you know so it's there's that tr- i try to find the balance of like i don't want a group of players that are all from the same high school or the same region yep but if that's the highest level of competition in the country in that region and those are the best players like you have to also make decisions about what type of players are going to have like because I could recruit a player from this state and she's the best player in that state, but her lacrosse IQ might actually not be that very strong compared to someone who's the third best player on their team at this, you know, dominant high school in long Island, or, you know, obviously for my region, like Massachusetts, thinking about our new England players. Um, so that, and then within the Ivy league, we don't have the same amount of hours for skill development in the off So I think that that forces you as a coach as much as I would love to just find these just, you know, hidden gems. And I still love to do that. That's a big part of, you know, what I took pride in when I was a recruiter at Northwestern was just finding players from all over. Um, We don't have the same type of hours to develop, develop them in the Ivy League. And so I do have to, Um, be thoughtful about bringing in a certain, a player that already has a certain level of IQ, a certain level of stick skills, um, and really started thinking more about what are they learning at their high school program? What type of offense did they run? What type of defense did they run? Is that going to be, you know, am I recruiting someone, you know, we're playing a zone defense and they've, they've never been exposed to that their high school career. Am I doing that player a disservice? Would it be better for me to recruit a player from this high school who um you know her whole her high she played his own defense at her high school or they they ran this um this style of offense and so she would be able to transition so much better into our style of offense so I've been thinking and I don't know if that was the transition from assistant coach to head coach but I think about that stuff way more now like yeah what are they learning
1: like you said you can't win if you can't play as a team and you can't exactly. play a team if you don't have smart players. Exactly. So we all recruit the best athletes we can find, but then the smartest ones are the ones that play. And, exactly. And, and so, you know, then it's like, okay, well, how do we even evaluate IQ? Because it's really hard to see sometimes, particularly at a prospect camp or something. If it's a big prospect, you can't really see IQ. You can see it a lot better on a club team. And, but then you, that's why I think you're starting to look at who's coaching them because you can, A, find out from that coach, If they, you know, if you trust them that they're, you know, this kid's a smart player Um, or B, you can actually see them doing some things, um, you know, that, that are, that add up to IQ, like clear space on a cut or help on defense or, you know, whatever it is. Um, So that's, um, yeah, it's really interesting and it's, it's so important, but do you at your prospect camps try to create scenarios that you can identify IQ? Yes. How do you yeah. do
2: um We think about drills, like, I'd say two ways. Um, a, any type of uneven numbers drill, you're going to get to see what kind of player, like, whether they have the sense of being a great teammate to move the ball quickly, but also if they even have the I, sense of IQ to understand, you know, how to, like, manage that type of situation. But then also, like, what we do is as opposed to just doing a 4v4 we'll put some kind of stipulations to the drill you know right. and we'll say okay here's what we're looking for in this drill we'll demo it with our college players and then you can just see through like you can see lax IQ very clearly in that situation and coachability if they're if we just said okay these are the three rules of this 4v4 you know you're going to give and go you know, uh, yep. like, uh, you got three seconds to hold onto the ball and then you see someone who's a great player, but they pass and they just stand there or they're holding onto the ball for 10 seconds. You question the IQ and the coachability. Um, even though they might be the fastest player out there, it's yep. like, um, so we try to just do drills where Here's what we want you to do in this drill. And it's not us trying to overcoach them, but if they do that then we can understand that they're listening and they're coachable, yeah.
1: you know. Coachability and IQ, I mean there's a, a there's a, an attitude and an aptitude. Yeah. And so sometimes it's like the best kid ever but they just don't get it and that's the, you know, yeah. got the attitude but don't quite have the aptitude. And sometimes you can't tell aptitude because you don't know if they've just been taught nothing. You know,
2: right. I know. Uh, like
1: they don't know, you know, that, you know, that you should or shouldn't do this. Um, and that's, that's really hard. Um, what about in conversations? I mean, I, I, uh, I went to college with uh, Lars Tiffany. He's the head men's coach at Virginia and he talks about getting his recruits on the whiteboard and literally like asking them questions. Like, how would you slide to this? Like, what do you call this? And just try to get an idea of actually, can they even have a conversation about the kinds of things that you're going to be doing and it's kind of revealing it doesn't mean you wouldn't recruit someone if they had no clue but nor would it mean if they knew everything that you would recruit them but it is interesting you ever tried that or thought of it
2: that's really cool I've done that I've started doing that when I interview assistant coaches now I get them up on the whiteboard you know which sounds obvious but that was something that was a, a new concept to me but that's really cool in recruiting I'm not opposed to that at all I think it's it's for me, too, a big part of it is I want people that, that love the game and they, yeah. they're really passionate about totally. being an athlete and, and lacrosse. And so I think that there's an element of that that you t- test their IQ, but you just also get to get a sense of, like, their ability to, to communicate, you know, and, and be a confident and part of the identity of our program, you know, as young women. And that's what we're – then those are the type of young women that I want to draw into our program that they're – they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll get up on the whiteboard. you know, And maybe it's, who knows what they're talking about, but if they can have a sense of confidence and they can have fun with it and they can express just a love for the game or like a curiosity and an enthusiasm about that exercise, that to me speaks volumes about someone who just would be mortified about you know, or really they like, they don't want any part of, right. you know, to draw an X's and O's on the whiteboard. I, not that that player can't be a great player, but I don't know if that's right for our team. Like I want players that are pumped yeah. to go and do that type of exercise because they just, they're confident, you know?
1: It'd be great if that, if this was actually a thing and all high school coaches knew that, you know, this is I what... might
2: make it a thing. <laughs> I might be still on <laughs> Stephanie's uh, <laughs> idea. Yeah, I, I love it. That's yeah. just it's it's unique and just gives you a, we talk about being brave you know yeah. um and that that's a, a sense of lax iq but it's also a sense of bravery
1: you know well, like you said it's also a sense of of passion for the sport i mean college coaches i mean you and i are friends because we love talking about lacrosse together right exactly. and that's like how we met uh, you know when exactly. i visited northwestern and
2: yep. college coaches
1: love talking lacrosse and if they can talk with a player it's like a breath of fresh air. Cause most of the time they don't get to like talk about their offense, except for where they're, you know? And so I, I always, as a coach love that. And yeah. uh, I think that, you know, I would imagine most coaches would. Yeah. So cool stuff. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for the time. Good thank luck you. down the stretch here. We'll be uh, rooting for you. And um, one of you real quick, what's your, uh, what's your prospect camps that you'd like to tell everybody about in, in coming up this summer?
2: Sure, we've got an overnight camp of July twenty fifth through twenty eighth at Dartmouth, and uh, it's the most beautiful time of the year in Hanover, New Hampshire. So come check it out. We'll have lots of great coaches and um, just get to experience the Dartmouth, the, the Dartmouth experience. You know, the woods, the Connecticut River, everything that makes Dartmouth what it is. But we're excited about that. We're expecting you know a couple hundred campers in attendance and um high level of competition and we love to teach. You know, it's not just run and gun scrimmages. There's a lot of teaching that we have a lot of fun with and take a lot of pride in. So um it's for all middle schoolers and high schoolers. Awesome. So, Get up there and join the good women good of course. the woods. The would yep. Become a woman of the woods. Exactly.
1: Well Daniel, thanks again. Good luck and we'll be Thank in touch.
2: You. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: The Philacrosity Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There is no question that video is a critical part to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today.